Father, we just thank you so much for the Easter season and, and what it means to us, the, the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, all of us know the story. All of us, uh, uh, we, we certainly don't fully understand it, Lord. The great things went on there, infinite transactions beyond anything we can possibly imagine. But we do know the story, Lord. We know about your death and your burial and your resurrection. But Lord, help us today as we look at this text to learn how to apply that story to our lives. Uh, Lord, how we can learn to apply the resurrected life that you have given us through, through your resurrection, Lord, that, that we can apply that to, to our daily walk with you. Lord, so that every day is a celebration of Easter where we celebrate your resurrected life in us. So teach us how to do that today, Lord. Teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, happy Easter to everybody. There's an old Baptist hymn that says, Tell me the old, old story of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. That's the Easter story. That's what it's all about, the, the old, old story of Jesus and his glory and Jesus and his love. I mean, all of us know the Easter story, don't we? I mean, we know how Jesus was nailed to the cross. And why was he nailed to that cross? He was nailed to that cross for my sins and your sins. And we know how they put him in the grave. And, and, uh, but on the third day, I say on the third day, what happened? He rose from the grave. And, and so we know that story. And that's an exciting story. And I don't know about you, but that old, old story never gets old to me. I mean, I can tell that story and read that story and get excited about it every time I hear the story of, of the king of glory dying for a wretch like me. How amazing is that? That the God of glory would die for us. But the real issue isn't whether or not we know the story, because I think everybody in this room knows the story. The real issue is what have we done with the story of Easter? I mean, how have we applied that story to our life? Now, if we were talking to the author of Hebrews, uh, and uh, as we've gone through the book, the first part of the book of Hebrews, he's kind of told us what we're to do with that story. And what is that? What are we to do with the story of Easter? I'll ask you that question. What are we to do with it? You know what we're supposed to do with it? We're supposed to rest in that story. We're supposed to find rest in that story. We find rest in it for, for the abundant life that we're to live now uh, and, and all the nows in eternity. I mean, the Easter story isn't some track, some story written on a track that we put in our back pocket and we hang on to like a ticket that's going to somehow get us into heaven. I think that's the way a lot of people see the Easter story. They see the Easter story as, well, there's this transaction that took place back in history, and one day because that transaction took place where Christ died for my sins, one day I'm going to get to live with him in glory. But the Easter story is much, much more than that. I mean, much, much more than that. Listen to what Philip Brooks, Brooks said about the the. The, the Easter story. He said, the great Easter truth is that we are made new here and now by the power of the resurrection. The, he goes on to say, the great Easter truth is not so much that we are to live forever, but that we can live the resurrected life now because we are going to live forever. That's the great truth. And listen, you can only live the resurrected life when you are truly resting in the old, old story. When you're truly 
resting in Jesus Christ. That sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? It sounds pretty easy to rest in that story. Uh, to rest in the finished work of Christ for all our sins. To rest in his resurrected life for our sanctification and our glorification. But it's not near as easy as it sounds. And m- most, of, most Christians struggle with this idea of resting in Christ. So listen to what the author of Hebrews tells us in beginning in verse number 11. So we're in chapter 4, verse number 11. Listen to what he says. He says, let us therefore be diligent since Christ has died for us, since he's been buried in the grave and he was raised from the dead, since he's done all of that, therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest. Let us be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Now what example of disobedience is he talking about right there? He's talking about the example of the Israelites. The Israelites who, after the exodus, went into the wilderness and they refused to rest in Christ. And so they perished in the wilderness. And and why did they perish in the wilderness? Do you remember? Go back to chapter 3, look in verse number 19. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Unbelief in what? Unbelief in the old, old story. Do you realize that they heard the old, old story before the old, old story was old? They heard it before it even happened? Look at chapter 4, verse 2. It says, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. They heard the gospel. The gospel, by the way, is the Easter story. It's the good news of the Easter story. And I'm not going to, if you want to find out how it was preached to them, you'll have to get last week's tape. I'm not going to go through that again, but he says, for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. And, 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 but the word which they heard did not profit them. How many of y'all have heard the Easter story? Well, if you hadn't heard it, you're going to hear it today. Okay? But you can hear it and it not profit you. How many Israelites went across the Red Sea Heading to the promised land, how many of them? Two million of them. How many of them made it in? Two. For the rest of them, the gospel story was of no value. They heard it, but it was of no profit to them. And every one of you have heard it, but you want to make sure that it's a profit to you. That's what he's saying right there. So he says, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. If it hadn't been Easter today, I would have given this message a different title. I would have entitled it, Working Hard to Rest. Now that, that's kind of a paradox, isn't it? Working hard to rest. Isn't that exactly what the author is saying right here? He's saying that you're to work as hard as you can so, to enter the rest of Jesus Christ. That's your work. You know, if you'll learn that that's your work, you'll have victory in Jesus Christ. Until you learn that, you will not have victory. I've used this passage before since we've been in this study about rest, but let me, let me go over it again. In, in John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, the, you don't have to turn there, but the Jews came to Jesus and they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works, plural, of God? And what was Jesus' answer to them? He said, 
this is the work singular that you believe on him whom he sent. That you believe on me is what he was saying. That's your work to put all of your faith into Jesus Christ. That's how you apply the Easter story. And if all you've done is heard the story and you put it in your back pocket as some kind of ticket to get you to heaven, it's not going to profit you. Only when you work, when you're diligent to enter that rest, does the story profit you. That's our work, to believe in him. He's our Sabbath rest. We're to enter that rest. And we're to rest in him for all our salvation, which I think everybody does that, all our sanctification and our, all our glorification. Why is it work? Why is it work to enter his rest? Because we're humans. That's exactly right. And we're religious humans. You know, it, it, resting in Christ goes against the grain of almost everything we're taught in religion. What are we taught in religion? We're taught in religion that there's a God. And, and we must work in order to please that God. And you know what? I bet you a lot of you, I know I do, you've got that ingrained in your system. You feel like, man, I've got to work hard to please God. I mean, God's not pleased with me today, so I've got a bad day. God is pleased with me today, so I'm having a good day. God, if you're in Christ, God is always pleased with you. you but you've got to work to come to a point where you believe that. Uh, you know what religion does? It gives you a list of do's and don'ts. And that you have to follow in order to be pleasing to God. That's not the gospel. That's not the Easter story. Someone showed me a list the other day of phrases that people would be surprised are not in the Bible. If you don't read your Bible very much, that some of these phrases might surprise you. You, you. you think maybe they are in the Bible. That God helps those who help themselves. My mama used to quote that verse to me all the time. That's not in the Bible. Clint, now, my mother loved to quote this when she came into my bed, bedroom. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Did your mom ever quote that to you? Ezekiel 7, 8. She knew I couldn't find Ezekiel, so she could, you know, throw that up at me. To thy own self be true. You ever heard that one? That's actually Shakespeare, by the way. That's not in the Bible. Seven deadly sins that will keep you from entering heaven. Have you ever heard the seven deadly sins? that'll keep you out of heaven. Friends, there's only one sin that will keep you out of heaven, and that is unbelief. See, all of those phrases, and there's many more, imply that we have to do some kind of work to be pleasing to God, that the cross is not enough. Let me, let me give you my own list. I'll give you a list of things that a lot of people will be surprised. To, I, they look at me funny when I quote them, to su be surprised to, even hear, to hear that they're in the Bible. Listen, like this, number one, all things are lawful. Do you know that's in the Bible? That all things are lawful? 1 Corinthians 10, 23, if you don't believe it. Christ is the end of the law. I can stop there for righteousness, because that's the purpose of the law. But Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe, Romans 10, 4. Do you know what? In Colossians 2, 11, it says that if I am in Christ, all my sins are forgiven. Past, present, and future. That's in the Bible. And in Hebrews, we're told that by the blood of Christ, we've been perfected forever. No matter what sins you commit in this life after you're saved, 
You've been perfected forever in Jesus Christ. And our, maybe one of my favorite verses, it's our theme verse of this church. In Christ, we've been given the very righteousness of God. All of that's in the Bible. All of that's in the Bible. And what those verses scream out is this, that we don't work for our righteousness. Our righteousness is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And, and, and the way we receive righteousness is by resting in that old, old story of Easter. Pastor, you probably need to be careful here. I mean, everybody wants to put qualifications on all of this stuff. You better be careful here because people are going to get the idea that you can tell them that if they're saved, they can do anything they want to do. That's exactly what I'm telling you. I will boldly stand up here and say that if you're born again, you can do anything you want to do. All things are lawful. Now, if you want to be a whoremonger, if you want to be an adulterer, if you want to be a homosexual, if you want to be a, a, a covetous person, if you want to be a liar, if you want to be all of those things, you have not been born again because the new nature wants to be perfect. The new nature wants to be like God. And so God frees you up and gives you the power to be who you want to be and do what you want to do. What you want to do is to please him. What you want to do is to live righteously in Jesus Christ. And the only way that you can do that is not in your own power, but by resting in his power, by resting in the power of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, most of us don't have any problem resting in Christ for our salvation. I, I don't think that's a problem with most people. I mean, because we know that it's amazing grace that saves us. We know what sinners we were before we were saved. So we have no problem resting. We know, man, without the cross, there's no way we're going to make it to heaven if we're honest with ourselves. We know that. So we don't have any problem resting in the old, old story for salvation. We don't have any problem resting in the old, old story for glorification. How many of you think you can glorify yourself? I mean, you can't glorify, you know you can't glorify yourself. We know that we can't take this body of death and make it a body of life. We know that we can't take a body that was sown in corruption and make it sown in, in make it in a body of incorruption. We know that we can't take a body that was uh, born weak and raise it in power, born a natural body and, and raise it into a spiritual body. We know that we can't do any of that. We know we can't glorify ourselves. Here's where our problem comes in, though. We think we can sanctify ourselves. We, have to, we, we think that, yeah, I'll rest in God for my salvation, and yeah, I'll rest in God for my glorification, but I've got to help him sanctify myself. And he wants me to help him sanctify myself. He want, what's sanctification mean? It means to make yourself holy. How holy does God want you to be? He says this in the Sermon on the Mount, Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. How many of you have arrived there? Guess what? How many of you are born again? You have arrived there. You are perfect as the Father in heaven is perfect. Because he's the one who makes you holy. You can't sanctify yourself. You can't make yourself holy as the Father is holy. 
And what our problem is, we keep trying to sanctify ourselves. Let me give you an example. Let's assume, let's pretend that I have a temper. Guess what? We all have tempers. Having a temper is not the problem. It's controlling the temper that's the problem. Let's assume that on occasion, or pretend that on occasion, I don't control my temper. Well, you know what my reaction when I, when I lose my temper is? Or when I fall into any sin. I've got other sins other than temper. You know what my reaction usually is? Oh, God, I'm sorry I've lost it there. I'm sorry I screamed at Chap like I screamed at him and said those bad words to him. I'm sorry. I hadn't done that. We're pretending here. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that, that, I, that I blew it with him and said mean things to him. Man, I'm sorry. I'm never going to do it again. And you know what God, God just shakes his head, I'm sure, and says, oh, yeah, you're never going to do it again. Lord, I'm going to try better. I'm going to try not to lose my temper. I'm going I'm to do my very best not to lose my temper because I want to be holy. Or, okay, Lord, I'll go see a psychiatrist. And I go see a psychiatrist to help me with my temper. The psychiatrist says, you're hopeless. And, and he sends me to the doctor. And I go and see the doctor. And you know what the doctor says? Look, take Valium. If you take Valium all the time, you won't lose your temper. Now, when I'm doing all of those things, what am I resting in? I'm resting in myself. I'm resting in society. I'm resting in, in medicine. And I'm not resting in the Lord. And as long as I'm trying to do that, I'm not going to get victory over my temper. You know when I get victory over my temper? It's when, I'm, when I say, Lord. I, I mean, there is a repentance factor. There is a confession factor. I mean, God says, man, you shouldn't have lost your temper like that. And, and, and I say, Lord, you're right. But, Lord, I can't fix my temper. Lord, please help me with my temper. And you know what? When I reach that point where I rest and, and, I, and I believe him, I say, Lord, if you don't fix it, it's your problem. You say you're going to sanctify me. You're going to make me holy. Maybe you're not ready to get rid of all of my temper yet, but when you're ready, you'll get rid of it. I can't get rid of it. And I rest in you. And, and all the condemnation goes away because, hey, Lord, it's your job to fix my temper. It's not my job. See, the devil wants to condemn us all the time when maybe sometimes God is just trying to work in us so that we'll rest in him, so that we'll come back to the cross and realize that we can't fix ourselves. That, that works for anything. I don't care what you're struggling with, if it's drugs or with it's, if it's with, with uh, adultery or with, with whatever sins you're struggling with, gossip, whatever it is. If you're struggling with a sin, and we're all struggling with sins, the way to fix it is not to try to fix it ourselves. The way to fix it is to rest in the Lord. To rest in the Lord and, and rest in His work. And if we rest in His work, I mean, sometimes it might take years. You know why the struggle usually takes years? It's because we're, not, we're refusing to rest. We're still trying to fix it ourselves. And He's not going to give us the glory. He's going to only let it fix it when we're ready, when we're done with it. When we're done with that sin and we're ready to give it to him and we say, I, we can't, I can't fix it, Lord. Will you fix it for me? And he'll do it every single time. Then in verse number 12, it looks in verse number 12 like he goes off into some tangent here and just decides to tell us all about the word of God. 
And, and this verse is a verse we take out of context all the time. So, so let's read it. You'll, you'll recognize it. You've heard it before, haven't you? For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and of the joints of, and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's why a lot of people don't like reading the word of God. That's why a lot of people don't like reading the word of God. Now, what did, what did the author, did the author just break here to tell us all about how wonderful the word of God is? And, and, and I think we think that because we take this verse out of context all the time and, and we use it to describe the word of God. And I don't think that's wrong to do that here because this verse does stand alone and it does match up with the rest of scripture. So you can use it for that. But the author's got a purpose for putting this in here right here. And what's that purpose? What is, what is he trying to tell us right here? I mean, what, what he's trying to say is that the word of God, for the most part, is not about patting us on the back and telling us what good little boys and girls we are. That's not what the word of God is about. It is a supernatural sword. Look at that, a two-edged sword that cuts to the core of your soul. It is living and powerful because it is the literal word of God. It is the eternal word of God. And it pierces to the core it, by exposing our wickedness, by the wickedness of each and every one of us. If we read that word, I mean, it exposes our wickedness. Now, how does it do that? Re, just, I mean, just think of your study through the Bible. And a lot of you have been here for a long time and we've been studying this Bible together. I mean, this Bible hurts. It hurts. If, if people say, oh, read the Bible and you'll be happy. No, that, not necessarily. Man, sometimes the Bible will make you very unhappy. Read about David. Man, David was a, was a great man of God, and no sooner does he slay, I mean, he slays the giant Goliath, and you think, happy days are here, and then next thing you know, he's murdering one of his best friends. I mean, he, it's about wicked men. David was a wicked man who, who murdered people. Moses murdered a man. Paul murdered people. Man, the Bible's not about a bunch of good boys and good girls. It's about wicked people. Man, the Bible, you read the Bible, and you know what? The Bible is permeated with the law. Man, read the law, and the law make you happy? The law doesn't make me happy. The law makes me sad because I know I can't keep the law. I mean, the law, the law is the standard for, for, for living up to, to the glory of God, and we know that, that we fall way short of the glory of God. I mean, it's a discerner of my thoughts. I mean, when I read the law, it says, man, your thoughts are evil. When I read the law, it says, your heart is desperately wicked. Man, the law doesn't make me happy. The law makes me sad. It condemns me. It's like looking at a mirror, and I look in the mirror, and I say, man, you don't look so good. That's what the law does, and the Bible is full of the law. Oh, that's all right. Read the books of books, the prophecies, the book of prophecies. Those are good to read. How many of you read Nahum and Habakkuk and Zephaniah for devotional, for devotional reading? And Ezekiel for devotional reading. Now, I'm talking about devotional where you want to get really close and happy with the Lord. You know what the Zephaniah says? You're all going to fry. That's what he says, because you're wicked, and you deserve to fry. 
Man, that's, read the prophets. Nobody reads those minor prophets. I mean, we, I read them, and a few people have to raise their hand. They read them, but you don't like them. If you like them, there's something wrong with you. Oh, thank the Lord for the Gospels. Don't you love the Gospels, man? The Gospels are wonderful. They are wonderful, but man, you know what, it, what I see in the Gospel? I see the sick and the lame and the blind and the hypocritical and the the demonically possessed. That's what I see in the Gospels. You know what I see in the Gospels? I see mankind hanging the Son of God on a cross. That's what I see in the Gospels. Man, it cuts when you read the Gospels. Read the Sermon on the Mount. That doesn't make it won't make you happy. Blessed are those who mourn. Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Give when someone asks, give it to them, no matter what they ask. Nobody will follow that rule. If you are, I'll see you after church. Oh, but we got Revelation. You know what I've learned about Revelation? Everybody wants to study Revelation until they read it. Then when they read it, they don't want to study it anymore. You get past the third or fourth chapter, man, we don't want, the crowds start thinning, trust me. We packed it out for Revelation for the first three or four weeks and then made it thinned out after that. (laughs) The intent of the Bible is not to make you feel good about yourself. The intent of the Bible is to show you how hopeless you are without Jesus Christ. That you can do nothing of your by yourself to relieve your hopeless state. Nothing. Thank goodness for the Easter story that it's there in the Bible. Thank goodness for the Easter story. But it's only the very last part of the Gospels. But thank goodness it's there. Thank goodness for the epistles. I mean, I love the epistles. Because it's in the epistles that we learn about the meaning of of. Of, of, of the Gospels, about the meaning of the rest of the Bible, about the meaning of the Easter story. We learn that that's our only hope. And that's what Paul says in, in Colossians 1.27. He says, this is the mystery that has been hidden from the ages that is now being revealed to you. Christ in you, your hope of glory, your only hope of glory. That's our only hope. He's our only hope. The resurrection, the Easter story is our only hope. We can't add anything to that. We have to rest in that story. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying right here is that you had better be diligent to enter that rest. You Not only rest in Christ for your salvation and your glorification, but rest in him for your sanctification. And if you rest in anything else, you're going to perish. In the wilderness, just like the Israelites did. You're going to die lost if you're resting in anything else. Oh, pastor, you don't know me. I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I don't need the word to tell me otherwise. Who do you think you're fooling? You're not fooling God. Look at the very next verse. He says, And there is no creature, that includes us, we're creatures, hidden from his sight. But all things are naked. All things 
All in the Greek means what? All. Every single word you say, he hears. Every single thing you do, he sees. You hide nothing from him. He says, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and opens to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, you notice the must give is, is in italics to try to translate that. It's really, I, don't, I, think it's a, we have, I think it's more we have an account. You have an account with the Lord. You have an account in heaven. And you fill it with good things and bad things. And it, the good things don't wipe out the bad things. And for most of us, there's a lot more bad things in our account than there are good things. I mean, our accounts are full of evil. And he's got our account. He's got it logged in. He's seen everything that we've done. He's heard everything that we've said. Every nasty word. Every time we've gossiped, it's up there in an account. Mine's not. Because mine's been wiped out by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. See, that's the only thing that can wipe that nasty account we've got up there. And what does he do? He empties out that account. He empties out that account with all that garbage in it. And you know what he fills it with? He fills it with the righteousness of God. How much more righteous can you get than the righteousness of God? None. Zero. So, man, I'm resting in that. I'm not going up to heaven worrying about my account. I'm resting in the righteousness of God. That's my account is full of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because he took him who knew no sin and, and he made him sin for me that that account would be emptied out and I would receive the righteousness of God in him. You understand the blasphemy? Do you understand the evil, the wickedness of trying to add to that account? Of trying to say somehow I can add to the righteousness of Jesus Christ? No way. There's no way. And it gets even better. Look at this. Seeing then, verse number 14, that we have a great high priest. Not a high priest like the, like the Jewish high priest who went into the tabernacle or into the temple once a year to atone for sins with the blood of bulls and goats. I mean, not like that. We have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast, therefore, to our confession in him. We're to be diligent. We're to work to rest in him. What's our confession in him? What, is, what does Paul say in Romans 10, 9? If you confess with your mouth the Lord, Lord, God, Jesus Christ, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, that's the Easter story. Thou shall be saved. You shall be saved. We're to hold fast to our confession. We're to rest in the story. Because Jesus is the one who has passed through the heavens to heaven. He's the one who's passed through the atmosphere and through the stars and the galaxy all the way up to heaven. He's the only one who's done that. You remember what Jesus told Nicodemus in chapter 3? He says, no one has ascended to heaven except the Son of Man who came down from heaven. He's ascended, back. He's ascended to heaven. And the only way we can get to heaven is on his back. He's Jacob's ladder. He's the only one way we can ascend to a heaven. 
is through what he's done on the cross. And so we're arrested to that. And what did he do when he came back to heaven? We're told in Hebrews 9, verses, uh, in Hebrews chapter 9, that with his own blood he entered uh, the most high place for our sins. I mean, he, with his own blood he went into the heavenly. He went to the throne of God, to the mercy seat, and he sprinkled his blood on that mercy seat. What blood was that? Theosomatos, the very blood of God. That's what sprinkled on the throne of God. That's the mercy seat that we come to. And it's only that blood, and when he sprinkles us with that blood, that we have the righteousness of God. That's the only way we can save ourselves. That's the only way we can sanctify ourselves. That's the only way we can be glorified, and that's his work. His blood and believing and resting in, in what he's done for us. And then he says something again. It almost seems like it's out of context, but you'll see it's not. He says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. In every way he was tempted as we're tempted, yet he did not sin. Well, you know, he didn't sin because he's God, right? Partially true. But he is also, Jesus is 100% God, but he's also 100% man. And because he was 100% man, his body's just like my body. I mean, has the same, the same temptations that are thrown at my body were thrown at his body. He knows every temptation that I've ever been tempted with. He knows every temptation that you've ever been tempted with. And yet he didn't sin. Why didn't he sin? Because I believe because he's God. Because he was virgin born and he didn't have a sin nature. But there was a choice there and he chose not to sin. And because he was God, he had the power to overcome sin. But what's the good news about that? He understands our temptations. He understands your frailty. He understands your weaknesses. He understands how the devil can get to you. And he's not angry at you about that. He's not angry because the devil tempts you. He's not angry because you have an evil thought because he had evil thoughts thrown at him. He's not angry about those things. You know what? On the contrary, he wants to help you because he understands what you've gone through. And so look at what it says in verse number 16. He says, let us... Therefore, since, since he understands, since he can sympathize with our weaknesses and our frailty as human beings and the temptations that we face, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Instead of trying to fix things ourselves. he understands why we fall. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy at the mercy seat where the blood is sprinkled, that we may attain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. You know what he wants me to do with my temper? He doesn't want me to try to fix it myself. He understands a temper. You think Jesus didn't have a temper? You think maybe it didn't make him angry? when they took him to that room with all of those priests and they slapped him around and they spit on him and asked him who he was. They put a bag over his head and they 
hit him with their fist? You don't think it made him angry? You don't think he could have done something about that? You better believe he could have. He showed them in the garden when he said, I am, and they all fell back on their backs. He showed them what he could do. You think it didn't make him angry when they took that crown of thorns and they jammed it down into his head and the blood came down on his face? You think it didn't make him angry? You think it didn't make him angry when they tied him to a post and they whipped him almost to death? You think it didn't make him angry? You think he wasn't tempted to do something about it? You better believe he was tempted to do something about it. You think it wasn't, didn't make him angry when he was taken up on that hill and they nailed his hands and his feet to a cross? You think it didn't make him angry? You better believe it made him angry. But he held his temper. You know why he held his temper? Because he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And he said, Father, forgive them, all of us, for we don't, we don't know what we do. He understood us. He understands us now. And so he says, come to my throne of mercy and grace. Quit trying to fix yourself. Let me fix you. Let me make you holy. Let me take care of that sin that besets you. Let me bless you beyond anything you possibly believe. In our text in Colossians Wednesday night, Paul said that more than anything else, he longed to pass on to his people, to all of us, the riches of the full assurance of Jesus Christ. The riches of the full assurance of nothing but Jesus Christ. Christ I preach, he says, nothing else. Resting in Christ, that's what Paul says. I want more than anything else for you to understand that you're eternally secure in Christ, that you've been perfected forever, that you can rest in him with full assurance and you'll be rich. That was his passion, to get us to rest totally in Christ, to rest in the old, old story of Easter. That's my passion too, to get you to rest, to get myself to rest in that old, old story. I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know it's true. It satisfies my longing as nothing else can do. And it will satisfy your longing too. The old, old story of Easter. Rest in it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for that old, old story. We thank you for the grace we have in Jesus Christ.
how foolish we are to think we can add anything to the work that you've done. Oh, Lord, we understand that faith without works is dead. We understand that you have a work for all of us to do, but that work is not to save ourselves. That work is not to sanctify ourselves or glorify ourselves. Your word is clear on that. We're to rest totally in what you've done for us on the cross. What a great story Easter is, Lord. Help us not just know the story, but apply that story to our very lives. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Y'all want to stand and we'll sing a song. Doing the Lord's Supper, right? We're going to do the Lord's Supper.
here at Calvary Chapel, we don't believe in what theologians call transubstantiation. What that word means is that somehow when we take, eat the bread, that we're actually eating the physical body of Jesus Christ, that is transformed into the body of Jesus Christ, and that the wine or the grape juice is transformed into the actual blood of Jesus Christ. What that means is that Jesus Christ has to continue to die for our sins. In order for transubstantiation to take place, he has to continue to be on the cross. It's almost as if he has to get back up on the cross. We don't believe that at all. Because we believe what the Bible says, by one offering, by one offering, Jesus Christ has purged us of our sins. He has sanctified us forever. All our sins have been paid for, past, present, and future. And when we come to the Lord's table, what we're doing, we're remembering the Easter story that that on the cross 2,000 years ago, Christ died to perfect me and you. And there's nothing left for him to do, nothing left. And there's only one thing for us to do, and that's for us to believe and rest in the old, old story of Easter. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Let's stand and close in the song.